miscommunications can be a costly mistake. Um, I'm not a big poem guy, but there's a poem that I came across uh, with a couple movies. It, it just can't seem to keep popping up, and so uh, I finally just decided, like, I'm going to look into this. And this is a poem by Alfred Tennyson named The Charge of the Light Brigade. Anybody heard of this poem? Oh, a couple. Okay. So uh, it's a poem about this situation that happened in the Crimean War. And the Crimean War was fought basically between uh, the British and the Russians. It's a little more complicated than that, but we'll just, this isn't a history class, so we'll, we'll keep it at that. And the first stanza goes like this. Half a league, half a league, half a league onward, all in the valley of death rode the 600. Forward the light brigade, charge for the guns, he said. Into the valley of death rode the 600. It sounds like an ode to the light brigade. It sounds like something you might read at, say, a Veterans Day. Obviously not in America, but maybe in Britain. You might read to think about soldiers who have fought valiantly in war. But the second stanza makes things a little more complicated. Forward the light brigade. Was there a man dismayed? Not. Though the soldier knew someone had blundered. There's not to make reply. There's not to reason why. There's but to do and die. Into the valley of death rode the 600. So what happened? Well, the light brigade were a force of horsemen that had very little armor on because the point was that they could go swiftly into battle. They could make strategic quick strikes on the enemy and then get out. But if it came to long-term disputes, they were going to struggle because their horses had very little armor. They had very little armor and things. The idea was in this battle, the, the, the battle... Um, of the light brigade uh that i can't think of the, the name of the battle right now but uh the battle the idea was that the commanding officer had this idea the the battle had kind of moved from one side of the valley to the other and what had happened when it did was that the british had left some of their cannons behind to in order to advance and, and the commanding officer saw this and was afraid that the russians would be able to take their cannons and actually steal them uh, away and so he said listen we haven't been using the light brigade at all today and so let's send the light brigade to the cannons to make sure that the Russians can't steal them. Because it'd be so heavy, uh, the quick horses of the light brigade will be able to overwhelm them, and there's no way they'll be able to steal them. And, and the, this idea was sent to uh, by a guy named Raglan, became the messenger. And he was to go to the commander of the light brigade, who was a commander named Lucan. The problem was is that when Raglan sends the message to Lucan, he doesn't read it. He basically just summarizes it. And he says, go after the guns. And Lucan looks at him and he's like, what guns? You know, it's a whole valley of guns. Which guns do you want us to go after? And instead of pointing directly at the cannons that, that the British had left, he kind of makes this general motion, just kind of over the field, like the guns. There's a lot of theories historians have about why he did this. And it's actually really interesting uh, rabbit hole if you want to dive into it. But because Lucan knew that the whole purpose of the light brigade is to make very quick strikes, he knew that he had to just attack. He had to attack immediately. He, he wasn't exactly clear about what he was doing, but he just had to do it now. And so they, they rode full speed into the heart of the valley, a valley that at this point was completely surrounded by Russian artillery. Of the 600 horsemen of the light brigade, half of them were either killed or injured during the charge of the light brigade. It was a deadly disaster that was 
all happened because of a miscommunication. Now, our passage this morning is going to have two different miscommunications. Neither of them are going to result in military defeat, but it could result in the difference between missing the kingdom or not. We'll be in chapter 6 this morning, and we'll actually start in verse 30, but at the beginning of chapter 6, Jesus sends out his 12 apostles. He sends them out to do the work that he had been doing. And so the 12 go out and they preach the gospel, they heal the sick, and they cast out demons. And that's where we'll pick up this morning in verse 30. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest for a while. For many were coming and going and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he, that is Jesus, went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. The apostles, we'll stop right there. The apostles returned from their short-term trip. And if you've ever been on a mission trip, you know that there's just something about those trips that are exhausting. Um, a couple years back, I, just because of the nature of scheduling, um, I ended up going to uh, Haiti for about 10 days and did mission work there, kind of in, in the bush in Haiti. And uh, we flew back into Atlanta on, I don't remember, but it was on at, our plane came in at like nine o'clock. But because uh, life just works like this, uh, the peoples, my, my in-laws, had this Alaskan cruise that they had kind of done because they had gotten enough people to go with them. They had some free tickets, and so we were able to go with them on the Alaskan cruise. And our plane just so happened to leave the next morning at 7 a.m. And so I got back from a 10-day Haiti mission trip at 9 p.m. and then flew the next morning from Atlanta at 7 a.m., which was delightful. So I spent the first three days on that cruise just sleeping. Um, that's what you do after a mission trip. You just sleep. <laughs> and uh, they're difficult work. But the disciples get back from their short-term trip that wasn't just teaching or doing backyard Bible clubs. They were casting out demons and healing the sick, preaching the gospel. Pretty full load they had. And when they get back, they don't just simply not have time to rest. It says they don't even have time to eat. Uh, that's what Jesus says. Uh, For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And what does Jesus do? He says, let's go away and let's rest. Now, this isn't the point of the passage, so I'm not going to make a big deal about this. But what Jesus is showing us in this moment is that it is Christ-like to rest. Some of us have trouble with that. I know that. Some of us have trouble with stopping to rest. But here's the thing. When we do that, when we refuse to rest, what we're saying is, is that I don't trust that God can handle this without me. Whether it's my home or our church or whatever else. I don't think God can do this if I stop. There are times where we need to stop and rest. Maybe that's even here at Pleasant View, that we need to stop and rest. I know I've heard from countless people over the years who have said, you don't understand, like, if I take a break, like, this is just going to fail. 
And I'm not talking about self-care, right? Self-care is this big buzzword. I made sure, Kristen, with my wife, that that was the word that everybody's using now. And self-care is this idea that I've got to take care of myself before I can take care of others. It's the whole airplane, when the oxygen mask falls in, you've got to put yours on first, and then you can help everyone else. And that's not what I'm saying, that you've got to take care of yourself first. What I'm actually saying, in some ways, is the opposite. I'm saying that you've got to not trust yourself first. You've got to trust that God doesn't need you. And that his work doesn't rest on your shoulders. And if you're here today, and, and maybe the pandemic has kind of given us a lot of us rest, which has been really good. Uh, it's been a blessing from God in a way that we've been able to just stop for whatever, you know, eight, nine months now. And just kind of not do a lot of the things that maybe we didn't have to be doing. But maybe in a year or two, you're going to get to a point and you go, man, I remember when he talked about resting. And that'd be really nice right now. If only I could. If you ever get to that point, I want you to come and find me. And I want you to say, Micah, pastor, whatever you want to call me at that point, um, I need rest, and I don't know how we can do that. And we're going to find a way for you to get rest, because Jesus tells us in this passage that it is Christ-like to rest. Now, on a side point, and then we'll move on, some of us don't do anything but rest, but that'll just have to be a a point for a different day, all right? Um, uh, we, We don't have time to talk about that, and that's not even in the passage. So, Jesus takes his disciples away to a desolate place. And the people, hungry for a lot of things, rush ahead of him. So much so that when Jesus comes ashore, the people are already there. Mark says that Jesus saw the crowd and he had compassion because they were like sheep without a shepherd. I always think of this particular thing I read a few years back. Uh, uh, Maybe six years ago, five years ago, something like that. I, I don't know, I can't even remember really how it happened, but all of a sudden I got really into this idea of having sheep. Uh, not being a pastor, I mean like literally having sheep. Um, and it wasn't something that was even close to a possibility where we were at the time. Um, and it's still something that I'm like, yeah, one day I'd like to have sheep. But uh, I did what Micah does in that moment. Uh, you know, if you want to know who I am, one of the things I'll do in that moment is I'll read a book about it. And so I did some research. And so I bought this book called uh, Stories Guide to Raising Sheep. I think that's what it's called. It's just this basic guide to raising sheep. It's this pretty thick book, and I read all kinds of stuff about them. Um, I even read, like, you know, how to, like, how to help with, like, birth and stuff like that. I mean, I got really in-depth. I read the whole book, cover to cover. In the introduction, I don't usually read the introductions, but for some reason I read this one. In the introduction, it was written by a guy named Garrison Keeler, and I'm going to show you how much of a nerd I am. Uh, he used to be on NPR. He would do this segment on Prairie Home Companion about Lake Wobegon. If you've ever been flipping through stations and heard that, it's not on the radio anymore. But it was really interesting, actually. Um, I really liked it. Kristen would always moan when I, I would turn it on. But um, it was really interesting. Anyways, he buys uh, this farm and gets some sheep and puts them out on the farm. And him and his wife have this problem, though. They don't have any um, sheep dogs. They don't really know how to do anything. And they can't get their sheep from one pasture to the other. And they think, well, we don't have dogs, right? So we'll just act like dogs and we'll just run up to the sheep and try to like scare them into the next pasture. And he said it would kind of work. They would move, you know, two or three steps back and then they would just stop and just stare at us. And so it would take hours to move the sheep anywhere because it would just it would just be two or three steps at a time. He says one day he's in his kitchen and he's eating breakfast and he, he looks out at the pasture at the sheep and it finally just dawns on them. These sheep, they don't need someone to scare them. They're just literally just waiting in that pasture for someone to come and lead them. 
So he says, so we began to just gently come up to our sheep, call them, and then just lead them. And it worked ever since. I always think of that, this passage, and I always think of that book when we get to this passage, because that's what Jesus is saying. Is that he comes ashore and he looks at his people and he says, man, they just need someone. They're just sitting out there in this field, just waiting for someone to lead them. This idea about a sheep without a shepherd is actually used often in the Old Testament to speak of a nation that doesn't have a king. There's actually more that's going on here than just like Jesus having empathy for these people, Jesus having compassion for these people, that while that's true, what he's really getting at is, is that these people need a king. What's interesting about all that is that John shows us that the people actually knew that too. John's gospel says that the people were going to take Jesus by force to make them their king. They were going to literally make Jesus be their king, even if they had to use swords to do it. So Jesus is looking at the people and he's going, y'all need a king. And the people are looking at Jesus going, you need to be our king. And I told you there was a miscommunication. And you're like, sounds like everybody's on the same page. But the problem is this, is that it's easy to say we want Jesus as king until he doesn't fit what we think Jesus is going to be as king. Right? There's a lot of people that will talk about uh, whether it's in politics or culture or whatever, Jesus is kind of becoming this tool in marketing, if I can use that word, marketing. He's becoming this tool to say, like, you know, Jesus wouldn't do that, or Jesus would do this. And, and sometimes I think there's some truth to it, and sometimes I hear that and I'm like, have you ever read Scripture? <laughs> like, does that sound like Jesus to you? Really? You think Jesus would want us to do that? Like, that's just silly. And the truth is, is that misunderstanding Jesus is not just a problem that we have today. It's also a problem that they had on the hillside. Let's keep reading. Verse 35. And it grew late. So it's it's late in the afternoon. His disciples come to him and say, look, this is a desolate place. We're out in the middle of nowhere, is what they're saying. And the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he, that is Jesus, answered them, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, shall, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, he said to them five, or sorry, they said five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. They sat down in the groups by hundreds and by fifties. Listen to the way that Mark is telling the story because he's actually warning us, he's warning the careful reader to pick up on something that's already happened in scripture a long time ago you've got a group of people in fact you've got a group of hungry jews out in the wilderness and then all of a sudden some of them start to complain and say the answer would be for us to leave the answer would be for us to go back it's it's almost exactly out of exodus when the people of god God miraculously carried them through the Red Sea. They get to the other side. They're wandering through the wilderness. And then all of a sudden, some of them go, Moses, was it not, like, was it not bad enough for us to die in, in Egypt? You had to bring us out here? I think they actually say at one point, were there not any graves left in Egypt that you had to bring us out into the wilderness to make us die of starvation out here? They even say, Jesus, it would, I mean, sorry, not Jesus, Moses, it would be better for us to go back and be slaves because at least then we could eat. 
the disciples say pretty much the same thing. Jesus, it would be better for these people to go back and leave your teaching and to just be slaves because at least they could eat. In both situations, both in Exodus and now in Mark 6, what God says to them is, no, I'll provide. So Jesus hasn't come to his people like Napoleon, wanting to form an army to take over the world. Instead, he's come like Moses, ready to bring his people bread out of the sky, basically. Mark is showing us that before Jesus becomes the conquering king, he is the providing prophet. He is the providing prophet. Katie, I, I don't think I got the, the remote, so if you could click that for me, that'd be great. I never told you that. I should have told you that. It's under my Bible. Perfect. There you go. Providing prophet. Thank you. Um, he is the providing prophet who is able to feed us, not simply so that our stomachs will stop growling, right? Jesus has already said in the wilderness, by the way, to Satan himself, man does not live on bread alone. Jesus is not simply giving them something to eat. And look how closely this is tied to the way Jesus' kingdom. We've been talking about Jesus as king and Jesus and his kingdom. And this is tied all together. Jesus doesn't come to form an army because that's not the way his kingdom works. That's basically what he says to Pilate. Listen, if this is the way my kingdom works, I would have already overtaken you. My, my kingdom doesn't work this way. Instead, his Kingdom is not about sword and war, but through faith in his words. Notice the apostles' response to Jesus. Wait, you want us to go and spend 200 denarii? Now, uh, I want to do some math real quick. Um, so 200 denarii. One denarii is about a day's wage for a common laborer. So let's take our uh, minimum wage and make it an even number. So we'll say $8, okay, just so the math is easy. So $8 an hour, let's say you're working 10 hours a day. I know that that's maybe a little more than some of us, maybe a little less than some of us, but we'll just say 10 hours because that's an even number. 200 days, they're basically saying, Jesus, you want us to spend $16,000 to feed these people? Now, it's easy at that point, and this has been my assumption all along uh, until just recently, that what they're saying is, we don't have that kind of money. We don't have $16,000. But if you flip forward in the book of Mark, Mary comes later on, not Mary, uh, Jesus' mother, but an, another Mary is a common name. Mary comes and anoints Jesus' feet with her perfume. When she does that, Judas makes this comment that's really interesting. He says, uh, shouldn't this perfume have been sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Judas seems very comfortable with that kind of money being on hand. He was the one that had the money bag. He would take some off the top when no one was looking. But Judas seems to be completely fine with having that amount of cash in the bag. I don't think, I, I get from that passage that when they say, Jesus, do you really want us to spend 200 in there? They're not saying we ain't got that kind of cash. They're saying we don't want to spend that kind of cash. We don't want to give up that much money for something so little. I was reminded when I thought about this, uh, I told the group Wednesday night, shout out for Wednesday night uh, Bible study, but I told our group Wednesday night that I spent one semester with my brother and sister-in-law, no, backwards, my sister and brother-in-law in upstate New York. Um, when I first got there, it had been a really hard time for their family. Um, and so we, the, uh, my brother-in-law decided like, let's go and we'll go to TJ Maxx and I'll get, I'll get all the kids a treat. And they had two daughters at the time. 
And somehow getting each kid one treat turned into each kid gets one treat and then one thing for a friend. And so most of the night ended up being about finding the three-year-old something to give her friend named Jacob. And we looked, I mean, all over that, <laughs> that store for something. And finally, uh, my, my brother-in-law named Edwin finds this. I mean, it's a huge truck, but it was like made of like really flimsy plastic. I think it was like $4, but it was huge. I mean, it looked like something that you would think, man, that'd be a pretty good bit of money, especially for a three-year-old. And my sweet little niece looks up at her dad and says, oh, no, daddy, that's too expensive for Jacob. <laughs> Like, I want to get Jacob something, but like, look, you know, we're not going to spend that kind of cash on something that big. Um, I love that story. About that. And it's the same heart that the apostles have. Like, yeah, 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 let's give them something. But like, we're not going to spend that kind of cash. 16 grand? No. What does Jesus say? How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they found out, they said, well, we've got five loaves of bread and two fish. And Jesus basically says, give me everything you got. Just give me everything you got. It may be very little. Just give me everything you got. Mark is also doing something else in this passage, though, that, that we can't spend just a whole lot of time talking about. I'd love to go in depth on it. But Mark is actually not just looking back to Exodus. He's actually looking forward in the book of Mark to another time where Jesus is going to take bread. Uh, let me read what he says. Maybe you can pick up on it yourselves. It says, Uh, In verse 41, and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven, said a blessing, and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. Jesus takes bread, he blesses it, he breaks it, and then he gives it to his disciples. When Mark writes this gospel, if you remember, he's writing to the church at Rome who has just lost their pastor, Peter, um, by uh, crucifixion. He was a martyr. When the church at Rome would have read this passage, Jesus taking bread, blessing it, breaking it, and then giving it to his apostles, they would have immediately thought, this sounds just like the Lord's Supper. This sounds just like the Lord's Supper when Jesus says, this is the new covenant in my body that is broken for you. And in the same way that when Jesus takes the bread on the hillside and gives it to his people, his people have enough, In the same way, when Jesus has given of his own body, his people have enough. It's a beautiful picture of what Jesus will do on the cross. Because look at how the story ends. Verse 42, a short verse, an important verse. And they all ate and were satisfied. It's easy to pass over that. They all ate and they were satisfied. Jesus is not simply providing. He is satisfied. He is not simply satisfying, but he's satisfying 5,000 men with five loaves of bread and two fish. What other gospel writers will tell us was the, the lunch for one little boy. Jesus, this is going to sound crazy. Jesus isn't a need-meeting God. He is a satisfying God. He is, um, I think it's dead. Um, he is a satisfying God. G.K. Chesterton said, The Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried. The Christian life, I'm going to say it again, has not been tried and found lacking. It has been found difficult and left untried. In a similar way, if in our own Christian lives, 
if we get to a point where we say, you know what, Christianity is just not satisfying. I would tell you that it's not your Christian life that is unsatisfying. It's something in your life that's not Christ, right? It's that you're, you're putting something in there that's not actually Jesus. Because Jesus is satisfying. It's why John Piper can say that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. That's basically how John Piper's built his entire ministry is through that one sentence, that Jesus is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. Look at what the disciples do. And those who, uh, those who ate, sorry, verse 43, and they, that is the disciples, took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. It's no coincidence there are 12 baskets, one basket for each man. Each basket would be this souvenir this reminder as they walked away of the time where Jesus didn't just give people something to eat. He gave them enough to eat. So much so that there was stuff that they took away. There was extra lacking off the top. It's going to be a reminder that they're going to need really soon because we pick up in verse 45. Immediately, he made his disciples get in the boat and go before him to the other side to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. After he had taken leave of them, that, that is, he dismissed the crowd and he, he left, he went up on the mountaintop to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea and he was alone on the land. And he saw, I love that, and he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. And they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Jesus sends his apostles out in the boat, go ahead to the other side of the sea, I'll, I'll meet you over there. It's funny, maybe there is something that happened in that moment where one of the apostles were like, uh, what do you mean? <laughs> How's that going to happen? We're going to go on a boat by ourselves, you're going to stay behind, but somehow you'll meet us over there. Are you going to get a different boat? Like, how, like, what's going on here? I really wish Mark would have included that dialogue because it's interesting, but he doesn't, right? Verse 48 says, that they were making uh, headway painfully. They were struggling out in the boat, out on the sea. And while Jesus' people were struggling, what was Jesus doing? He was resting, but he was praying. He was praying for them, right? And so much so that he knew, right? It says he saw that they were making headway painfully. He saw. Now, if there is a storm, it's going to be very difficult to see. And so in this moment, we see really the first miracle of Jesus walking on the waters that he saw what his people were doing. I, I love that this week, that as I am struggling in what God has told me to do, he is seeing me. It's almost the exact same thing I preached from Exodus 3 because God hasn't changed since Exodus 3. And he hasn't changed since he walked on the water. Jesus is watching and he is seeing and he is knowing that I am struggling. It's a beautiful reminder that that's the God that we serve. So what does Jesus do? Well, he goes to them and he walks on the sea. The scripture says that he meant to, it says, but when they, he meant to pass by them. 
I think what that means is that Jesus wanted to be able to walk all the way across the boat so his disciples could get a full glimpse of, oh, this is Jesus. And, and, but instead, when they saw him, they thought it was a ghost. And it's easy. I've always been like, the disciples are so dumb. Why would they think that was a ghost? It was clearly Jesus. You want to know why they thought it was a ghost? Because people don't walk on water. That's why. Like, that's why it's so dumb for us, because we're like, well, obviously, Jesus is walking on water. Well, no. I mean, like, imagine you're driving, whether it's in Carrollton or somewhere else, you're driving by a big body of water, and all of a sudden, you see somebody out there walking on the water, just walking around. Your first thought is not going to be like, I guess that must be God. No, like your first thought is going to be, what on earth is, did I, am I looking at, right? It's easy for us to, to mock the apostles, but like this is really easy how they got to this conclusion that it's a ghost. Because human beings don't walk on water. But Jesus can do what no man can. But to be fair, that's, that's the lesson of the loaves that they missed out on. Because they had seen earlier that Jesus not only cares so much that he is willing to do what no one else will, but he is also capable enough to do what no one else can. Let me read that again. He not only cares so much that he is willing to do what no one else will, he is also capable enough to do what no one else can. Because he is a king that is in control. He is a king that is in control. Listen to what he says. Take heart. It is I. Do not be afraid. Jesus' very presence is encouraging. That word encourage literally comes from an old French word, uh, two French words that mean to make someone courageous. To make someone courageous. Verse 51, And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. He got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. Can I tell you something about this passage? I don't like this verse. And, and it's going to be kind of difficult why. The reason why I don't like this verse is because I've had a lot of times where I've come to Jesus or Jesus has come to me and the wind kept blowing. And this is a reminder for us. And it was a reminder for the church at Rome who had just lost their pastor that sometimes... Jesus comes to us, and it doesn't feel like he's in control, but he is. That's the essence of what it means to have faith, is that I trust that, man, it doesn't look like God's in control. It doesn't look like he's working this for my good, but I trust that he is. I don't know how. I can't feel that. I, don't, I can't explain it, but I'll trust that God is doing it. says they were utterly astounded for they did not understand about the loaves they were utterly astounded but they they didn't get it they had missed the whole point of the loaves they had each taken a basket they maybe had in that boat had put the basket somewhere that they knew where it was that they were going to take when the boat landed they were going to pick that basket back up a reminder from the day before that, oh yeah, remember, Jesus can take this very little thing and make it much more. If you're a, a science person, uh, man, I wish I'd looked this up beforehand, but this is breaking the laws of, of matter, right? There's this law in science called the conservation of mass, which says that mass can neither be created nor destroyed. Everything that we've got in the universe is that the same amount will always be there. 
And yet somehow Jesus takes a little bit, turns it into a lot. They should have seen Jesus isn't bound by the laws of science. He can do whatever he wishes to do. They had missed it. You remember there's two misunderstandings in this passage. We started with one between the crowd and Jesus. I think this is the bigger one. The one that the apostles somehow were with Jesus, had watched him teach, had watched him perform miracles, and they still missed it. I got to tell you, I've gone to church a long time, 31 years with people who do the exact same thing. They've been around Jesus, they've seen Jesus, they've heard from Jesus, and they miss him. And they come week after week, sometimes the most faithful people I know, and they miss him. They don't get him. It's just like last week, we've seen the the parable of the seeds, that sometimes we can have a response to Jesus, we can have this emotional connection in some way to Jesus, and yet we miss him altogether. This passage reminds us we can even be around Jesus and still miss it. So what do we need to make sure that we don't miss this morning? What do you need to make sure that you don't miss as you walk away from here? That as a believer, you serve a caring and capable king who has no limits. So why don't you trust him? Why don't I trust him? As Doug and musicians come for us to sing together, I want us to think about that question. Do I believe that Jesus is a caring and capable king who is controlling things and is sitting on the throne right now? And if I do, then why don't I trust him? I don't know the answer for that this morning. I don't. I don't know why you struggle with that. I know why I struggle with that. So let's spend some time this morning as we sing, just thinking about that. If you'd like prayer over that or about something else, I'd love to pray with you here at the altar. If you'd like to pray yourself, you're free to do that as well. Let's sing together.